Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is Living Deliberately on the Whole Human Life of Henry David Thoreau with biographer Laura Dasso Waltz. We're listening to Pithecanthropus Erectus by Charles Mingus off the 1956 album of the same name. In the liner notes to this album, Charles Mingus calls this song, quote, his conception of the modern counterpart of the first man to stand erect. How proud he was, considering himself the first to ascend from all fours, pounding his chest and preaching his superiority over the animal still in a prone position. Overcome with self-esteem, he goes out to rule the world, if not the universe. But both his own failure to realize the inevitable emancipation of those he sought to enslave and his greed in attempting to stand on a false security deny him not only the right of ever being a man, but finally destroy him completely." And so, here we are. It is difficult to encapsulate all one means to say or wishes to have said over the course of years of work. On Interchange, I at least have had recourse to all the wonderful and wise things that others have said and written, sung and played, to assist me in trying to share some understanding. Of course, as Mingus also said, it's amazing how many ways a four-bar phrase of four beats per measure can be interpreted. Charles Mingus has accompanied Interchange on at least 14 programs over the last six years, Perhaps he and Henry Thoreau are its tutelary divinities. At least they both seem comparably cantankerous, honest, and dedicated to conversation, to making a world in their art that is not only beautiful and architecturally intricate, but significant and instructive. We only need openness and patience, a tall order these days. Today, Laura Dasso Walls will tell us about how a man, in seeking the best way to be fully alive, shared his life with his family, his neighbors, and the world. In her biography, Henry David Thoreau, Alive, Walls shows us a man deeply engaged with his community, a man thoroughly of his time and place, but in a way that still finds him beyond our current moment. In every way, we need Henry Thoreau's work to ring in our ears like Chanticleer in the morning. We need to front life deliberately and not come to the end of our days knowing that we have not lived. And further, let me just say, you could do much worse, and many of us have in our university classes, than spending many hours reading and studying just two of Thoreau's great essays, Civil Disobedience and A Plea for Captain John Brown. The first, influential for a nonviolent response to tyranny. The second, recognizing the necessity of violence in response to the quotidian and incessant violence of institutions in capitalist America. Laura Dasso Walls is the William P. and Hazel B. White Professor of English at the University of Notre Dame. And along with this biography of Thoreau, she is the author of The Passage to Cosmos, Alexander von Humboldt and the Shaping of America, both published by the University of Chicago Press. And now, Living Deliberately, The Whole Human Life of Henry David Thoreau, on Interchange, on WFHB.
your latest book, obviously, Henry Thoreau, A Life, or Henry David Thoreau, A Life. There are many books on Thoreau, uh, but maybe most of those are more interpretive of the works uh, uh, than biography. So was it your aim to, to really settle into the life here? Yes, it was. And um, a literary biography is kind of an odd form because, unlike most other forms, you've got the issue of what to do about the big books or the big essays that are happening in and through the life. And if you read several of them, you'll find that different authors will handle it differently. And I really felt that there were fabulous studies of his literary works out there. And the more I got into writing the book itself, finding the voice of the book, the more I thought, you know... I need to steer into the life itself and say enough about the literature that you can feel, like how Walden grows out of his life or how the other works grow out of his lived experience. But I did not want to, like, do the full halt, and now we're going to have 20 pages of analysis. I can really try to bring the thorough and the others in his life, the other people in his life, um, try to bring them to life and try to show how... um, the various threads of his writing and thought and action intertwine and create a kind of whole. Hmm. My own personal title for the book was Henry David Thoreau, A Whole Human Life. And the publisher thought probably wisely that it would be better to keep it Concise. Mm, I don't know. I like it, and it might have been one of those questions where uh, we're in the posthuman now, right? Where people well, people are like, "What does that mean? Does, it, <laughs> does she mean that in the posthuman way, or an anti-posthuman?" Well, it would have been a, or it is a bit of a provocation, yeah, mm-hmm. because he is a humanist, and even though he is a humanist, he does later in his life move into pretty posthumanist modes of thinking, and so it's an interesting. I mean, he never leaves the human behind. But there is a sense in which it expands and pluralizes in a way that could now be identified as sort of proto-post-human. And so it was a bit of a provocation there about what is it to to lead lead a human life, uh, but also the whole life, because the distortions of sorrow that have come down to us through the generations um, are pretty destructive, mm-hmm. and the distortion is that it wasn't a whole life, right. that in all sorts of ways it was a partial or, or um, even a kind of twisted life. And uh, he was a misanthrope and mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, a hermit and so on. And, and to know his life, to know the richness of the full life and uh, how he lived it and all the people who were in his life, family, friends, uh, correspondences, to know that he was a very surprisingly deeply social person and deeply connected with his friends, his neighbors, his family, his mm-hmm. times, alert to what was happening politically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to ask what your aims were, but I think you just described them. So, um, exactly, the, yeah. Yeah, uh, so the, and I was going to say, too, uh, the book is wonderful. I wanted to make sure that you you, you knew that. I thought that. the um, it, it really is, and I was, ex- you know, when you've read enough of a, uh, on a particular subject, having, I read the Richardson book and multiple other things, and you, you sort of think, well, I know this, right? You know, I know what's happened, but what you really did was make it a life, uh, and it was really exciting to sort of be with the man to trying to understand what it is to to live that life. Uh, and I was really, really uh, moved by it frequently, and I really found so much about the town, about his friends, about you know about what it was like to be alive at that time, a part of the book, and it was fascinating. Uh, and I hadn't really gotten that from anything else before, so I thank you for it. Well, thank you. That's so good to hear, because that's exactly what I aimed for. I mean, I've been working and thinking about Thoreau since, really, since I was a teenager. Mm. And you steep yourself in the period, because I've written on Emerson and others and the environment, and you start to feel like it is alive, and you 
start to feel, especially reading the correspondence of Thoreau and others around him, how vivid their lives were. Mm-hmm. Again, just as vivid to them as ours mm-hmm, are. Mm-hmm. And how could one convey that in language? Because I really kept sort of hearing the same 16 cliches about Thoreau <laughs> over and over and over again, and none of them quite carried the point, and none of them were particularly accurate. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, how do I push past this and uh, r- really be, be more historically accurate, but also just really show that... Uh, this isn't, I'm not cherry-picking, in other words. <laughs> this is the life that comes alive through all the writings um, of Thoreau and those around him. Mm. Well, it's, it's a full life, and it starts in Concord, Massachusetts. What a place. Like, it's the mm-hmm. place, you know, you, obviously you go there frequently, and you give talks there, and it's where the Thoreau Society is, and, you know, where Emerson lived, and uh, Hawthorne, and Alcott's, and not far from, even not far from Concord, you could go see Emily Dickinson and Amherst, you can go to, to Pittsfield to see Melville, you know, all these things oh, yeah. in that place. It's such a great center of American literary history. Well, it's uh, it's a fascinating place and obviously a fascinating uh, history of the place uh, in all these writers and their um, their being together. It's just one of those you know things that you wish you could have been there. Right? Yeah, <laughs> right? I would have. Yeah. I, do, I wouldn't have liked the fact that they didn't have heating or air conditioning <laughs> and they had to wear awfully bulky clothes. Yeah, sure, sure. A friend and I talk all the time about sort of the, the brilliance of so many of these books, and um, you know, as you as you say at one point, or you tell us that uh, you know it took something. Like like nine years for Thoreau to to write Walden, yes. um, but the idea that you know we sit down and we read these works of genius and 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 granted it'll take you a little bit of time to get through Walden uh, and you may break you know take a break or two depending on your mood, um, but uh, you know we're often sort of flummoxed by the the attention and intention in these things and the amount of of writing that was done right and and it takes you a while before you remember that they don't have computers or telephones. Or te- <laughs> televisions or anything else, right? The newspaper is the worst thing to deal with in some sense, or the town gossip. Uh, but you're, you have this... they had plenty of newspapers yeah, right, and right, town right, gossip, right, but right. yeah, no TV, no internet. Yeah, if you're going to be a writer, it's a good place to be. Yeah, it's a good place for to be a writer, um, and of course, writing letters becomes a form of literature right, for right. them. Um, because they have no TVs, they uh, love... Uh, this is famous, people traveling in America remark of how everybody loves... To, uh, to go to the lectures, mm-hmm, the lyceum, sure. lectures mm-hmm. in, the, in local lyceums, and they would use local talent, and then people would come through from all parts of uh, the U.S. or even from the world. Mm. And uh, I'm remembering uh, one American, one visitor from England to the United States got in a carriage, and all these farmers and farmers' wives are, uh, you know squeezing into the carriage and he was puzzled this was evening where are you going and they're all going off to the lecture <laughs> and, and he was just so odd i mean you know farmers going to improve their minds well, this truly was an astonishing right? oh, okay. so um yeah it's fascinating stuff it's not in other words it's not you have a, a what seems to us like a pretty elite group mm-hmm, mm-hmm. elite and difficult form of literature but what I've learned again and is how you have young people growing up from, you know, not terribly uh, wealthy families who are just as involved and just as engaged in this, this new thinking and influenced by it deeply and reading and listening to the lectures and writing to each other about what does this mean for us, what should we do, and uh, you realize that it goes pretty deep into the 
culture, even into the working classes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all mixed in together there, and we'll mixed talk about in. yeah, we'll talk about that in terms of thinking about religion and philosophy oh, yeah. and all sorts of things. Things are not distinct, uh, discrete entities. Uh, there, it's life. It's how you think. It's what oh. you talk about. It's what you do. So, um, it is again hard for us to sometimes cast our mind back into that kind of space. But your book does a great job of helping with that. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange with our guest Laura Dasso Walls, biographer and professor of English at the University of Notre Dame and author most recently of Henry David Thoreau, A Life, in which she gives us Thoreau whole, showing how the critiques of the life are not only wrong, but work to undermine this fierce voice of conscience and resistance to conformity. Uh, let's move on to you know um, a major question, right? Or everybody talks about uh, Thoreau and Walden. This is you know it, it's synonymous. Thoreau and Walden obviously had wrote other things, and maybe is famous for his uh, civil disobedience, uh, resistance to civil government essay that becomes civil disobedience, and maybe for a plea for Captain John Brown as well. Um, but Walden and Thoreau are synonymous generally. So why Walden? Why Walden Pond? Yeah. Well, so. It has a long background in Thoreau's longings, even um, as a child. He, he, well, he, we, he tells us a story in Walden about being taken to the pond. His family lived briefly when he was a boy in Boston, and they go out to Concord to visit his grandmother, and they have a family picnic at Walden Pond. And Thoreau always just loved nature, just was drawn, even as a child, uh, to the natural world. And as an adult, he writes about that memory of that visit and how it made, as he calls it, the drapery of his dreams. So the notion of going and living away by the pond was something that he cherished as a kind of goal or dream or ideal uh, for a long time. And he actually, it was kind of a thing back then, too. Um, When he was still a college student, just before he graduated, uh, one of his friends had uh, built a shanty, they called it, on a neighboring pond and invited Thoreau to um, hang out with him for six weeks while they're waiting for graduation day. And apparently it was really idyllic, and Thoreau experienced that and experienced it in a social context. Um, It wasn't an odd thing to do. It was kind of a... a, um, building these writers' cabins or or poets' retreats was something that was getting um, rather popular. But the experience of it planted an idea in his mind that what would it be like to do it, and to do it for long enough to, you know, not six weeks, but I mean really seriously, to write, have the space to write, and have the occasion to experiment with a different kind of writing, one that would be deeply experiential, and uh, not from books. I mean, he was very literate, but what he read told him that nothing he read looked like anything that he wanted to write, which is kind of tough if you don't have models. So he had to figure out, and that's one reason it took a while to write this book. Hmm. But to live at Walden Pond long enough to, as he tells us, to live deliberately, um, to front the essential facts of life, to do that and then write your way through it became the... um, I, I think he didn't know quite when he was going how it would work out, but he just knew that he had to try it. I mean, it actually did succeed, which is why you get this jubilant finish, because he created a great work of art, and he knew it. Mm. 
Yeah. Well, the you know the plan I think as you set up was to go and write a book um, for his brother. Uh, a week in the Concord and Merrimack Rivers was what he was going to write. He begins his Walden Journal at Walden, and, and but his focus at the right. time was uh, writing a week about his brother John, who had died uh, of lockjaw. Um, which or tetanus, is tetanus, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which have, is another shocking th- oh. fact of life that you, sh- that uh, <laughs> you know, we still have to contemplate uh, in this world, um, and maybe more so in the future, even in terms of you know resistance to antibiotics and things like that. But imagine cutting yourself. Uh, shape was it shaving? I don't remember. But yeah, the, yeah, he was, he was sharpening his uh, uh, um, razor on his strop or something like that. Yeah, yeah and, stropping it. Yeah, 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 and and then you're dead. A little, a little cut on on yeah. one finger, and. Uh, you know that was that was all it took. That was really a precipitating event. I mean, Thoreau was always ambitious to be a writer um, of some kind, and of course he's essentially an apprentice with Ralph Waldo Emerson, mm-hmm. and Emerson is is guiding him, um, or they're struggling because he didn't quite share Emerson's vision. <laughs> right. There's a little tension, and all of this is simmering, and then his brother dies. So rapidly of lockjaw and dies in Henry's arms, and there's a real sense that this is the catalyst. That is, um, he himself, Henry, um, comes down to the same symptoms, and everybody is shocked. They don't know how it could be happening, but they think that he's dying, too. And he does go, it's sympathetic, Locke. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the notion that he was so deeply empathic, like his brother had died and he was about to because he, too, was, was in some real way also that other person. Mm-hmm tells you something about the depth of his empathy, but also how much he had to protect himself. Hmm. Well, they were great, the greatest of friends as well. And, and they some, were friends. Yeah. Old, this was his older brother who had protected him, and they'd palled around together and gone um, into uh, you know, adventures in the woods and the rivers together. So. Mm-hmm. And the teaching business. And they were both teachers, <laughs> right. yeah, and they taught together. Right. Thoreau founded a school that was successful and uh, successful enough to call in a second teacher. So he wrote his, his big brother and said, uh, you know, when your term is over up where you're teaching now, would you come join me? We could run the school together. And so they did, and they would have run it for a long time. Mm-hmm. And they ran it for two and a half years. It could have been a lot longer, but John's health was um, shaky. And so finally he got so weak that they had to close their doors, and it was right after that that John cut himself, and and Lockjaw set in. So... Hmm. Was well, he already ill from tuberculosis, or I don't, I don't recall. Well, that. he was. He, he clearly did have tuberculosis, mm-hmm. but it, that's not what killed him. It is right. what killed his father and one sister, yeah. and eventually Henry too. Yeah, Henry Thoreau mm-hmm. himself. Well, uh, but, but you've got that catalyst and a mm-hmm. kind of almost a survivor's guilt in a sense. Now I must live mm. for two. When he comes out of the grief, it's it's through writing and it's through identifiably that kind of nature writing, he finds that distinct voice. And uh, he writes about um, hearing John through the birds, through the, uh, um, the sounds of nature, through the experiences of nature. And so it's a communicative act. He wants to write back, and he starts to, to develop this sense of the, the new voice, the distinctively Thoreauvian voice, starts to emerge. Hmm. Now, A Week in on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers is a much different book than Walden. Uh, I think you say somewhere it's a, a young man's book in some sense, uh, um, where you kind of th- throw in everything that you're thinking. at the, Oh, you know. yeah, everything but the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so he wanted to go to Walden. I mean, the ostensible reason was to write this book that would memorialize the long the two-week journey that he and his brother had taken together in a boat that they built themselves, you know, down the Concord, up the Merrimack River. So Thoreau folded it into one week, so it's a week, um, 
and in it he tells the story of the journey, but everything reminds him of lots of other things. Mm-hmm. So it's very packed and layered with memory. What it really does is, even by the end of the two-week journey, he's writing how the beginning of the journey feels like lost in time, mm-hmm. and uh, how they're sort of reliving. You remember back when we you know, rode up this stream, and, and uh, so there's, there's a from that little bit of a sense of memory that our life has lived so much of it in memories that start to accumulate and and get layered and deep. And then the loss of his brother, his companion on this trip, um, cast the whole thing um, in terms of the most the, the deepest meaning. And then he watches the whole landscape that they saw. This was in 1839. They were in their early 20s. Um, into a kind of history where they see the whole era was slipping away. Things that they saw, they saw for the last time, and they were gone, even a few years later when Thoreau was going to Walden Pond to write. And so he now has a whole kind of historical story to tell about memory and loss, both personal and uh, kind of what social, uh, cultural, historical, but also even cosmic so it's a very interesting book, um, mm. and one that many of us love deeply. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's a little long, and it's very philosophical, and, right. and uh, it wouldn't be the first book I'd read. This is Interchange on WFHB, and our show is about the whole human life of Henry David Thoreau. And it's brought to you by the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976 and located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information available online at the-uptowncafe.com. I kind of always have Thoreau and Melville in my head together as developing a pace, right? That there's this kind of yeah. unfolding as they both grow into into the men they become or the writers they become, the thinkers they become, right? Uh, and this this is the beginning of the spiralizing mind in a lot of ways. So, um, Both books. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Pretty... For, for Melville, it was Taipei. Mm-hmm. For, for Thoreau, it was a week. Mm-hmm. Thoreau read uh, Taipei and admired it, admired Melville. And in both of them, you see the same thing, a, a young and very vigorous mind uh, uh, discovering itself, even as you turn the pages. Right, right, right. It's like, look what I can That's do. That's what's exciting about it, right? Yeah, as a reader, too. Watch them, and they're, yeah. they're not their greatest books, in <laughs> right. that case, but they're books with greatness in them. Yeah, well, they're beginnings, something, too. Yeah, yeah, there's something mm-hmm. so exhilarating about yeah. reading them um, and, and seeing this person just, you know, it's like... Right. They're growing wings before your eyes. <laughs> it is exciting. And I think Melville read uh, The Week as well, right? A Week? It, oh. was, it was well reviewed. Mm. We'll have a notion that it failed. It, it failed only because the publisher didn't market it, and everybody mm. today knows you got to market. He didn't do yeah, marketing. Right. He was a printer. Right, right. He printed it and then stacked it up in his store. And <laughs> he like, did his part. He walked in the store and said, I want a copy. He's like, sure, here's one. Yeah, yeah. No, he did not advertise <laughs> or, or market in any sense. Right. He literally had to write or write this publisher or walk into his store mm. buy this thing. Gotcha. So, you know, a few people did, but not that many. Right, and, right. and so um, the, the book, even though it was reviewed, um, on the whole, quite warmly, Thoreau was very upfront about his, uh, how shall we say, dismay mm. with uh, organized religion, with mm-hmm. Christianity, and uh, was very interested in other religions at this point, um, not as curiosities, but as guides to life, mm-hmm. guides to true spirituality, or a kind of um, what a kind of 
overarching uh, uh, sense of a divine principle that all religions manifested in different ways, so we should pay attention to all the other religions. Mm-hmm. Well, that was pretty radical. Mm-hmm. And that upset a number of reviewers who ah. accused him of atheism and blasphemy. And that mm. was pretty poisonous stuff. That was a pretty toxic Right. Uh, meme to put out. Well, it's, it's got Melville in trouble as well. See, they're all, they're they're very similar. There you go. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The uh, so let's let's talk a little bit about Walden as uh, as not the place most of us imagine, not the woods or not the wilderness, but this this swimming hole or this this yeah. place that's being developed at the time too. As you say, the railroads coming through and yep. there's shanty towns there. There, you know, there it, there's life there. It's teeming in some ways. Well, it was right on the edge of uh, Concord, about it's a little over a mile from the town center, um, and it was basically the town's backyard, or is uh, town's backyard. And so, yeah, it was the swimming hole, it was the fishing hole, it was um, where people, families went for picnics, and uh, very well used. The railroad came in in 1843, Thoreau moved there in uh, 1845. So you have to imagine this had been a kind of uh, a communal woodlot for the town for two centuries. But in very, but in Thoreau's lifetime, a lot of those um, owners started to privatize and sell um, and cut the wood. That's what, partly what was building the railroad tracks and building and fueling the engines. So those railroad tracks, when Thoreau moved to Walden Pond, um, he looks right out at them. They're just a very good stone's throw. Uh, across the pond would have been raw and new and ugly, um, a steep bank of raw dirt right into the pond, and most of the trees on the pond were either cut or were about to be cut. So by the time Walden is published, which was nine years later, it took him nine years, um, Walden has hardly any trees left. Mm. And now it's all grown back. It's hard to visualize. It was open farmland and cut over land. Mm, yeah, you'd say it was clear-cut. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's between the railroad and the main road, and there's lots of people using the pond. And the reason he's got that spot is that Emerson, by absolute chance, was walking to Walden Pond one afternoon and came across a group of land developers who were bidding on this huge uh, piece of land on the pond. And Emerson loved the pond, and he said, oh, my God, this can't happen. And he outbid them on the spot. Mm. Comes back and tells his wife, guess what I just did? <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, literally, if Emerson hadn't happened across mm. that group of land developers, well, then he you know, figured out what to do with it, which was um, let Henry build his house there and live, live his dream. But we'd, we'd have such a different history if Emerson mm-hmm, had gone mm-hmm. for a walk that afternoon. What's, uh, uh, one of those things I think that that I hope your book does is 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 talk about that particular thing, right? In the terms, not that I hope it, I mean, I know it does that, but that when people people read it and try to understand this, you know, that that this is, um, you know, this is activity. This is life. This is people doing things. This is a place that isn't isolated. There's, there's a guy who's living in the midst of things and, you know, trying to understand how it means, how to make meaning in that space, right? How to yeah. make meaning in this transitional space of, of his own life, of the life in the, of the town, of of the railroad, of what it means for all this uh, as as we go forward, you know, how the future will play out in some sense. Well, put it this way, it's literally marginal land. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's on the margins, and it's, and it's used like marginal land. So when the railroad workers were building, the Irish uh, railroad workers were putting in the railroad, they had um, a little town um, right right next to where Thoreau built his cabin. And the, the, they call them shanties. 
um, you know, most of them were still there. They were thorough about one and mm-hmm. used to recycled the wood for his own uh, little house at Walden Pond. But, uh, you know, other people were buying that. You don't waste wood in New England, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So people were buying, and gradually the shanties were getting dismantled, and the Irish were moving up on up the line, and, and uh, eventually the village was abandoned. But, but Thoreau is right on the edge of this, and he starts, one of the things he does in Walden is speak of all the other people who'd lived on this marginal land. And they were the marginal people. Mm. Um, they were um, freedmen and uh, uh, poor, uh, poor immigrants, um, people in poverty, and they moved there because nobody much cared. I mean, this was a squatter's village, or mm-hmm. kind of maybe not concentrated enough to be a village, but it's it's where you could live if you had no money, and you needed to be um, close to where you could labor on a farm, or mm-hmm. one of them was mm-hmm. a shoemaker, another was a potter, and so on. So they're all gone by the time Thoreau moves there, but he can still recognize uh, the cellar holes and the ruins of the houses. Mm. He writes about that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's a kind of poignant side of Walden that when we cast it as wilderness, we sort of read right past all the parts of it that talk about the people mm-hmm. there, uh, whether they're visitors or people that he talks to or whether they're the people who used to live there. And, and yet, for Thoreau, this is such an important dimension. Can you, in other words, can you create a space um, in a marginal environment? He's a pretty marginal person himself at this point, you know, a labor um, He's certainly not making good use of that Harvard education. <laughs> right. Stripped and saved to, you know, and, and I mean, he was a scholarship student and all that. So, you know, instead of getting a good job, there he is out there, like, squatting on Emerson's land at the <laughs> pond, and he has some crazy notion he's going to be a writer. Um, and so he has to defend himself. People come mm-hmm. by and say, you know, basically, what on earth are you doing mm-hmm. out here? I'm Doug Storm on Interchange with our guest Laura Dasso Walls, biographer and professor of English at the University of Notre Dame and author most recently of Henry David Thoreau, A Life, in which she gives us Thoreau whole, showing how the critiques of the life are not only wrong, but work to undermine this fierce voice of conscience and resistance to conformity. So Emerson moves there, and a lot of the other people move there. And so in some sense, being a writer makes sense in that particular group. Uh, they're all writers. They're all well, talkers. They, they're all supportive. Yeah, they, but the town is not, you know, Thoreau is a town, you know, he's a townie. Right? Well, that's where the book starts. Yeah, I mean, the book right. starts, you could say it has two, Walden um, starts, when the first full morning at the pond, which, by the way, was John's birthday. Mm. His first full morning, he opens his journal and and uh, says, yesterday I came here to live, and goes on to describe his house, and it's part of Walden. So he literally starts what becomes Walden, and again, writes his way into it, discovers it as he lives there, and he's there two years, two months, and two days. So he, he knows he will be moving back to town, and of course he does. Um, so the book grows on him um, as he writes, but a big part of it is not just his own self-discovery, um, because even though it's visited, evenings and nights, early mornings, nobody's out there. He's all alone, and he loves it. Hmm. Well, people do come by and ask him, how, how come he's in this little house? Um, and it was a very neat, tidy little house, just literally a tiny house in today's terms, mm-hmm. fully finished. And uh, he starts to explain why 
and what what are the conditions of life? Do you understand what is essential to live? It's a philosopher's question. And he must have had a lot of interesting conversations because he sort of, it occurs to him that he should do this as a lecture. That is, walk into town and tell the townspeople in a formal sense, this is what I'm doing out there. It's not just a convenience or a, you know, this is a philosophical experiment. And those become the opening chapters of Walden. So there's this real back-and-forth quality to those early chapters because they're lectures to townspeople. Mm-hmm, Some mm-hmm. of them think what he's doing is exciting and really interesting, and they, they're supportive. Others are pretty skeptical. <laughs> and so there's a kind of, you know, some of you are going to love this, a lot of you are going to hate this, and, and uh, tone to it, and uh, right. it still carries. Right. Well, let's uh, let's uh, briefly talk a little bit about the time period again. I think at at one point you say uh, that uh, what was it? The narrative of Frederick Douglass comes out uh, like uh, that first years at Walden or something like that. Yeah, yeah. and uh, Thoreau had met Douglass, um, and uh, his sister Helen uh, corresponded with Douglass. Douglass was uh, actually stayed at Thoreau's home mm. um, when he came to Concord to lecture. They they the house was run as a boarding house and. Douglas was one of the people. Um, that's where they put him up. So we know that Thoreau uh, knew him and uh, vice versa. And Thoreau alludes to Douglas several times in his journal. And uh, I think Walden is deeply influenced by the question that Thoreau, as he listened to Douglas, um, asked, you know, why is this man, why was he enslaved? Hmm. Why are we, meaning himself, white European um, settlers, why do we feel that we can enslave such a person? And we are, because if you to enslave a person is to enslave yourself. Hmm. Why are we enslaving ourselves to a system that, uh, and, and we do not understand, we do not see um, what a violation, what a moral outrage this is. So he directs Walden as a kind of complement to Douglas's narrative. Hmm. Who are we that we can do this? Hmm. Why are we slaves to a system that we've never even thought about? We're not even aware that we're doing it. Hmm. You know, have some sugar with your tea. Right. So do right. you know where that sugar came from? That was slave labor, right? So maybe you don't need sugar. Right, maybe right. that's not essential. Well, that's a, a point that really struck me that I hadn't thought well enough about, too, is that you can imagine the expression, you know, economy, right, mm-hmm. uh, as being a direct rebuke or a way to, to talk about the, the slave economy and, and a way to say, you know, what, what are the ways we can live in which we don't do these terrible things we do? That chapter, Economy, is a takedown of capitalism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Direct and pretty complete and, and pretty radical. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's a brilliant book. And uh, it's obviously um, been decided as a brilliant book. It's in the canons of our literature. And, but also, I think, uh, infrequently read. <laughs> read in parts, <laughs> generally. Read in pieces. Read. Yeah, reading the uh, the reading chapter. Reading Economy is usually read, I think, or at least excerpted. Uh, ponds are difficult. Uh, maybe it's... It stretches out there in the middle and people struggle with it. But, um, you know, why why are so many people drawn to dislike him? Um, it, what's the simple way? Is it just how we are? Like it divide, you're a Republican or a Democrat, you're a dichotomous, you know, we're all on this, you're either this or that kind of thing and you respond a particular way to the text uh, from yourself. You know, books tend to be mirrors and so many people get so angry at, at the type of person Thoreau is, even in terms of trying to understand what a great, um, you know, 
know, foe to slavery and foe to capitalism. Maybe that's part of it. You know, in this country, you can't be a foe to capitalism. But, um, you know, what is it? Why, it yeah. Yeah. Why, what is it? Why do people dislike him so much? Well, part of it, it's tone. Um, he is an angry young man when he starts writing and he lets that anger show on the page. Mm -hmm. um, and part of what comes out is it feels like he's angry or accusatory uh, to us as readers. Mm -hmm. Like, what are you doing? Right. How have you enslaved yourself? And he, and he can sound superior. Mm -hmm. So when he says things like, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation, to know anything about him or even to read sympathetically is to recognize that he includes himself. Right. That, that he too, has led a life of quiet desperation, and he sees his friends um, in the same situation and, and his neighbors and feels, we're in this together and we're not doing this right, and we're all embraced in this problem, and I'm going to try to solve it and try to share what I've solved with you. Well, it doesn't come off like that because his tone can sound hectoring because of this anger. And it, there's a kind of New England sensibility to this that basically, you know, stand up on your soapbox and, you know, let them have it. And they'll push back, mm. um, right? I mean, part of it is I think he's looking for people, uh, you know, trying to create an audience for his book of people who instead of saying, well, you hurt my feelings, I hate you, <laughs> will say, well, I'm living just fine, thank you very much, mm -hmm. or, you know, and, and challenge him, or people who will say, God, you're right. I'm living the wrong way. Um, I'm angry, too. Right. And I share your anger. Hmm. And so it's a kind of, the divisiveness is, I think, a bit of a technique to sort out people who respond. Hmm. People who are just right. going to say, well, I'm rising in the capitalist economy. I love it. I'm doing fine. I have no problems. What right. the heck is wrong with you? Right. Um, you know, who says you're, you know, so great, high and mighty? Well, you know, Thoreau takes a risk there. Mm -hmm. um, and he, he tells us repeatedly in Walden that if you don't like this book that we're, you know, embarking on together, put it down, please. Mm. It's not written for you if you don't like it. Mm. What, but, um, but if you love it, like it or love it, if you're identifying, the anger will modulate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And pretty soon, he's got other voices. He becomes philosophical. He becomes lyric. Um, it, you know, he becomes ecstatic. Mm. Uh, he becomes profound. He becomes garrulous. There's lots of voices, but the anger is what people are put off by. Yeah. Uh, the I think you point out that there's... There is a narrative voice that isn't necessarily, even though at the beginning he talks about you know, being the I, you know, he'll use the word I because that's mm -hmm. who he knows best, you know, in respect to egoism. But the the there are multiple voices. There are multiple narrative perspectives in a, in a way. And there's even um, you know, other characters in a, in a way. So it, it's not just the angry young man who speaks, as you point out. Um, it's like a gateway. And partly it's sorting out people who will come along with him from people who won't, but it's his own gateway. He went there an angry young man. Right. This is Interchange on WFHB, and our show is about the whole human life of Henry David Thoreau, with biographer Laura Dasso Walls, and is brought to you by Limestone Post, an independent online magazine covering Bloomington and the surrounding areas. In-depth stories about the arts, environment, social issues, and more. LimestonePost.com. Writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. Well, let me ask about uh, resistance to civil government then, because it was written in what, uh, 48, published in 49, something like that. Published so, in 49, yeah, it was yeah. given as a lecture. Yeah. In, uh, 
So this is in that same. So this is in a period he's he's moved out of the house. You know, he's back back in town, um, uh, and this is another. Uh, f- I guess factor of Thoreau that people don't quite um, understand enough of. We can say, well, everybody knows this essay, but in the context of how he's living and writing, in the context that this is actually after the Walden experience, after the death of his brother, after a week on the Concord of Merrimack Rivers, after these things um, are percolating still, while he's in the midst of writing this, you know, this great work, uh, this great essay comes out as well. Do people respond differently to resistance than they do? to Walden, even though the works are sort of being written at the same time and within the same spirit of the age, in a sense? I think they do, and I think a lot of it is um, resistance to civil government. Its first title, it then is republished as civil disobedience. Um, It comes out of uh, his experience at Walden Pond, but typically what he does with his writing is, is each of his writings takes on a different kind of project. So they may all be happening simultaneously, but you feel like you're in a different universe with each one. And so the universe of resistance, um, there's the voice, there's the anger, um, but it's directed not that at us, like, how are you living, but it's like all of us are looking over at this machine of the government, which is doing something to us. And, of course, what he's asking, and that's in the title, resistance to civil government or civil disobedience, is that this is a civil government, which means government of, by, and for the citizens, which is us. This is us doing this to ourselves. Mm. There is no right thing out there that is a state um, that we should oppose ourselves to. If we don't like what the government is doing, we are the government. That's democracy. We need to understand that and take action accordingly, because we cannot allow the government uh, to, to, you know, if, if we reify it as the government and say we have to obey it when it asks us to perform unjust acts to another, we cannot allow that to happen. Mm. We must withdraw our participation. Right. Well, it's in, in that space of the Fugitive Slave Law, right? Um, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and the Missouri well, Compromise. It comes out before the Fugitive right. Slave right. Um, Law is passed, so it's published. In, it, the act takes place in 1846, in summer of 46. He's been at the pond a little over a year. And he's not. He's been refusing to pay his taxes for several years, and he was not the only one. Not even in Concord, there were others. Um, two of his good friends had not only uh, uh, agreed not to pay their taxes um, in protest, but also had been arrested. Um, and uh, one of them almost was jailed. That was Louisa May Alcott's father, Bronson Alcott, mm-hmm. almost jailed until somebody paid it, and they. And the other was jailed briefly. So Thoreau knew this was coming, but he also knew that the thing you had to do to make it a significant act of protest was to get ready to write about it. So when it happened, um, it took a while before he was ready to go public, but he gave it as a lecture to his townspeople. Again, this is a matter of principle. So that's the, again, you get the voice of saying, why are we doing this? We are the government. Um, We cannot uh, permit ourselves um, uh, to, to... become the agents of injustice to another, and that's what slavery does. We allow ourselves to enslave people. Uh, That's what the war against Mexico was, and this was a very unpopular war in his circle, and that's what Indian removals do. All of these three outrageously immoral acts are being done in our name by our leaders, and we need to make our voices, we need in our action to refuse to allow this to go forward. So you have somebody... Um, the essay itself is, is then 
the lecture slightly reworked for publication, and it comes out in 1849. 1850 is when the Fugitive Slave Act is passed, and suddenly um, there's a lot of people who are saying, we cannot do this, we cannot obey the terms of this law, because it requires us to um, identify and uh, collaborate in capturing and rendering back into slavery um, anyone who could be an escaped slave. Well, who could that be? Anyone with a black skin. Right. And it, it's outrageous. I mean, it's unbelievable to imagine the United States that did this um, to its citizens, to its people. But mm. uh, at that point, it's such a flagrant um, kind of um, legal requirement that uh, it became much more thinkable to advise resistance. Mm-hmm. It was a big uh, network of resistance in, in, in Concord and around there as well, obviously. Thoreau and his family were mm-hmm. part of it. Mm-hmm. So Thoreau is, is out ahead of this curve, but the curve catches up to him very quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the um, let's talk a little bit about uh, the essay for uh, John Brown as well, because uh, people mm-hmm. obviously also stand against or for Thoreau in in that essay as well. He's certainly a, uh, a guy who provo- provokes that that response, uh, and you know he he stands for John Brown's actions. Yeah, yeah. And when uh, so John Brown comes fundraising to Concord a couple of times, and at first Thoreau, along with pretty much everybody else, is skeptical. And uh, by the second time Brown comes around, um, Brown is coming from Kansas and reporting on what's been happening, the outrages in Kansas. And uh, um, people start to to really um, support him, and and, and people in Concord start to get behind Brown's cause. And when Ezzaro is, again, one of those people, um, when word of Harper's Ferry comes to Concord, Thoreau drops everything and starts to write a defense of John Brown, which was really radical because the first response in the newspapers and in the social media of the day was that Brown is a lunatic um, and a criminal. This was a criminal act, and Thoreau drops everything and starts to write because this is what everybody is agreeing. Um, And Thoreau is thinking, no, that can't be. I've met this man. Uh, I know this man. He is not a lunatic. He's not a criminal. He did this out of principle. And so this becomes Thoreau's plea for Captain John Brown, where he stands up in front of a large audience of conquered people against advice of his friends and has his say, defending John Brown um, as a hero, basically a hero of the resistance, a man who um, was was willing to, you could say, act in uh, defense of the enslaved. But the real point was he was willing to take up violence uh, to resist violently. And so there's a kind of crossing here. Resistance to civil government is advocates nonviolent resistance. John Brown, it's now violent resistance. Mm. Thoreau isn't saying that he would pick up a gun, but he does say, I, I can see circumstances where I would have to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But at that point, um, he's saying violence is already, um, institutional violence has already taken control right. of our nation. Four millions of people are subjected to violence every day. This must stop, and we've tried everything else. John Brown is now willing to take up arms um, and kill to defend those who cannot defend themselves as Mm. slaves. And Thoreau um, defends that and uh, casts John Brown as a kind of, uh, literally a transcendentalist, a a hero um, of principle. And um, it shifts the tide. It's really... There are others who are, who are starting to make this argument, but as far as I know, 
Um, Thoreau is the first to, to put it out in public. Within 24 hours, others are. And pretty soon, this becomes um, the, the majority. I mean, this is very persuasive, and the, the North unites around this um, principle of, um, you know, you must defend at all cost, and if the cost is uh, violence, then we're willing to pay that. And so the United States, you know, you, you watch this slide to civil war. <laughs> when, uh, Thoreau, when does Thoreau die? Was it 62? May, in 60, May 62. So he saw the beginning of the civil war. Mm-hmm. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange with our guest, Laura Dasso-Walls, biographer and professor of English at the University of Notre Dame and author most recently of Henry David Thoreau, A Life, in which she gives us Thoreau whole, showing how the critiques of the life are not only wrong, but work to undermine this fierce voice of conscience and resistance to conformity. Do you want to do you want to spend a little bit of time on the science and technology part? Oh sure, yeah, yeah. I was talking about. Yeah, well, I figured you would, uh, and I, I did. I, I, yeah. I missed a chance to. Well, to, this gives us. A, I mean, that John Brown of Civil War is a terrible note to end on. <laughs> 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 what I what one of the aspects of Thoreau that I love is that he was an engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, people think he was anti-technology. He was, as he said, as he watched the railroad go by twenty times a day. Do we ride on the railroad, or does it ride on us? He was not anti-technology. He wanted us to be conscious and deliberate in our use of technology so that we control it and use it for our ends. So would you have had a cell phone? I don't know. Um, <laughs> the, the point being, as an engineer, he knew how systems worked. He was not afraid of technology. He was an inventor who had invented both the, uh, number, the sort of standard number two yellow pencil. Um, he reverse engineered some good pencils coming out of Europe to figure out what they had to be doing to make such good quality pencils. He figured out the, the secret and uh, uh, invented the machinery necessary to make high-quality pencils, and that's what um, made his family relatively wealthy hmm. um, from from pretty penurious circumstances, um, the, the, constantly improving those pencils and constantly improving the market. Um, put the Thoreau family... Uh, in, in pretty comfortable circumstances, thanks to Henry Thoreau's inventions, and we all benefited from, you know, the pencil is one of these lovely, simple, utilitarian objects. Right. Um, it's perfect that Thoreau invented that. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those perfect inventions to fit that character. It, it is, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And the graphite that he developed the method for doing the very fine graphite that's that's in the pencils um, became essential to the modern mass printing process. So for some while, the Thoreau's had the best ground graphite, and um, and that made, made them integral to the first big uh, movement in um, printers adapting new technology to make mass printing possible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, now he, he was also a surveyor, and uh, that was one of the, the ways he made a living in some sense, or way he made money to live with. Um, he was a surveyor, a mathematician. Right. So my point about all this is he thinks about how systems work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he thinks very analytically, and obviously as an engineer, you'd have to do that. And then he goes out into nature, and he's got, I mean, there's a spiritual affection, that there's a, a deep sense of, of uh, God's presence in nature, but there's also that mind that's saying, but I want to understand how it works. Mm. And so he's doing things like looking at the species of plants or measuring the temperatures of all the ponds and springs or looking at uh, blooming and, and uh, uh, 
flowering times and blooming and, and seeds and so forth and trying to understand. It's always the questing mind that says, yes, but how does it work? Mm-hmm. Did you move a little bit away from the, the sort of idea of classifications, though? I mean, there's a sense that you, you discover that things do have um, uh, operations and processes, but there's a way in which the and, – and I, I suppose we might be able to say there's a way in which science moves in the, in the Agassiz way, you know, to, to collect, to parse out, to – to use science to almost uh, create these hierarchies of value, and 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 Thoreau doesn't do this, right? No, I mean he was perfectly respectable of categorization. If you want to understand what we would now call ecological relationships, you mm-hmm. have to know the names of the different mm-hmm. species of plants or fish or, or uh, bacteria or whatever. So to him, the names then um, become just as a name of a person. The mm. name doesn't exhaust the person. The name becomes how you, you tag that person, and then you try to understand their life. And so he wants to, once he learns the name of a plant, he wants to know everything about um, you know, inquiring of the plant. How do you live? How do you make your living? What is your unique way of being in the world? Mm. And he'll ask that of plant after plant after plant, and then of fish and of woodchucks and of birds, and it just goes on and on. And then, of course, um, every creature, every plant, every um, every person is part of the environment for all the other creatures, plants, and persons. And so he starts thinking in terms of interlinked systems, right? Everything I do affects you. Everything you do affects me and all of us. So that sense of how we're all in this together, he starts to follow these this network of relationships and starts towards the end of his life asking really profound questions. Um, he's in a forest land that, as I mentioned early on, had been deforested. Well, he lived long enough to watch regrowth. Hmm. And so he became a student of how, um, how do forests, when they're cut, how do trees come back? What species of trees? Why this kind of tree and not that kind of tree? And he watches the stages of forest succession and writes um, an essay that is still regarded as a classic scientific essay on the succession of forest trees. Hmm. This is all part of a, two books he was working on as he died, um, which he never finished. Um, but they have, as I said, a, a week elements of greatness in them, and you can just detect from them what could have been had he lived any, anything close to a normal lifespan, because all of this was starting to add up, because the human was part of it, the human engagement, uh, what we do in nature, um, as, as well as the kind of um, active agency of all beings in nature. Um, he became fascinated with geology and geological processes, um, especially with water and hydraulics and how rivers behave and what springs uh, do. And I mean, just... Right. He was curious. <laughs> right. Everything. Right, right. Well, you know, uh, we skipped over a, a lot of his, uh, I guess, his walks. You know, he's famous for his walks, his excursions, oh, yeah. his sauntering, uh, the trip to Maine and Cape Cod. And oh, one, yeah. I, I didn't want to, you know, it's one of the things that I, I, I found fascinating, too, was to imagine throw out in the Maine woods. And there's it, kind of terrifying, actually, uh, with the one trip where um, they, he loses his walking partner. I forget who it was. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, the, the, um, but to have, to have seen what is it like a, a, almost a kind of billboard or a paste, uh, paste up a sign for, right, was it Boston right. clothing or something like a clothing, clothing store in Boston? Or a department store. Yeah. I, I was like, oh, so there, it really no, is no wilderness. Wilderness, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Everywhere that, he goes, there's people. That, yeah, that part was, I was like shocked by that. So, yeah, uh, yeah was, well, so was he. Yeah. And, and so there it is. You know, this is the United States. Right, right. Part right. of it he's in where there really is no actual wilderness. And it's partly why his, his thinking develops a sense of the wild rather than just, you know, we think of wilderness as a kind of isolated space where people cannot be, or, you know, we might visit really a sacred place, which is part of Thoreau's thinking. But he gets very engaged because he is in a very abused, old, you know, there, there is nothing like wilderness that he right. is able to experience. What he experiences is landscapes modified by human beings, with, with only a very little exception on the top of Mount Katahdin, where he's finally out somewhere where, you know, very inhospitable to people. And then he, he sees God there, really. Mm. It's quite a stunning moment. But when he comes back to, you know, the world in which we live, he comes back convinced that the wild is everywhere. You, you, you cannot be anywhere. The heart of a city, um, your own body, um, human relations, um, you know, the, the, the cat sleeping on uh, at your fireplace um, in the warmth. Um, you know, your cat, too, is, is uh, an embodiment of wildness and the weeds that come up in your garden. Everywhere is wild. And so it's that principle of wildness that um, becomes a kind of generative force, um, life taking its own path and having its own will, and um, which exceeds our will, right? We cannot control it, wildness. Right. Right. That's why it's regenerative. We think we can reach out to the other side and capture it. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Um, it will never be captured. We will never be larger than the universe. <laughs> That's our show. We're still listening to Pithecanthropus erectus by Charles Mingus, described as being absolutely crucial to the development of free collective improvisation in jazz. Thanks to Laura Dasso-Walls for joining us to discuss her biography of Henry David Thoreau, published in 2017 to coincide with Thoreau's 200th birthday. It's an irony that so many who proclaim this man a selfish, misanthropic hermit are surely far more self-involved, less caring of their neighbors, and far more intent on their own shallow individualism and material success than Thoreau ever was. I'm Doug Storm, producer and host of Interchange since August of 2013. It has been a great experience. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Thank you for listening. Interchange's executive producer is Kyrie Greenberg. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.